4. 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to be in verse 13 again this week. Just wrapping up some things before we move on to the next verse. Letters, friends, are important things. They convey our heart, our passion, our goals. They convey our worldview. The letter that we've been in for some time, 1 John, written to the church, is written at a unique time and by a unique author. This is God's apostle, a sent one. He had first-hand revelation of God. He was an eyewitness of Christ. He was um, chosen of God, appointed by Christ Himself, and called to deliver the words that we receive here in this letter by the Spirit Himself. The time that this was penned was at a time when the world was full of trouble. It was full of confusion. It was full of evil. As we pause, we realize that times really haven't changed at all. You see, friends, we'll never understand the Bible until we understand the context in which the Bible is written. All of the Bible is written in the context of an evil, fallen world. All of the portions that are after the fall, anyway. We live in a time where liberty and justice are so perverted. They're used to encourage those two things, that we want freedom to express ourselves. And those things are used to encourage those uh, who might want to slaughter innocent children. Uh, freedom, liberty, justice are used to encourage young people to mutilate their bodies in ways that will have lifelong lasting consequences. It's used also to justify ignominious war of this sort or, uh, or another. You see, on the earth, since the fall, there has always been this reality of evil in the world, of difficult days, of trials, of heresy creeping in amongst the church, of people being led astray. And what we find in this letter is an old man's final words to the church. He knows that the church is going to go on without him and that there will be conflict and confusion. And he loves the people to whom he writes in the first century. And I'm convinced that this brother would love this church particularly as well. And he wants to encourage us. He wants to help us. And in this, knowing that the battle is going to rage on, how does he write? Some might think that he would write just superficially trying to cheer us up. But that's not what the Apostle does. What he does is he leans in with a theological undergirding. He wants us to understand theologically the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And some people in our day would say, well, doesn't, faith, uh, doesn't theology rather divide? Shouldn't we just rely upon well wishes and sentimental feelings and the like? And the response is no. We shouldn't depend on those. And yes, theology does divide. It divides those who genuinely belong to the living God from the rest of the world that is perishing in its trespasses and sins. And so John writes directly. He writes in individually. He writes incisively. He writes succinctly, describing the world in no uncertain terms. And you've heard me quote this time and time again, and we arrive at it this morning as the backdrop of the writing of this letter. John writes in chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. His statement poses some questions, does it not? What are we doing in this life? What can be done for us in light of this world that lies in the power of the evil one? What does the, church, the Christian church have to say to the lost and dying world? What is our message? What is it that we want to convey? 
Is it a political message? Is it a moralistic message? Is it a therapeutic message? Is it an, uh, an activistic message? No. Our message is one in which we would encourage everyone in this room and around the globe to be reconciled to God. Our message is one of hope and of peace, not peace that the world gives, but lasting peace. One thing that should be clear to all of us in light of this one verse and in light of the entire revelation of God is that this world abides in sin. That this world is a sinful, a wretched, a fallen place. The, the world has always been a place of war, war and woe and wretchedness. And this means that we are ultimately knowing that from Genesis to Revelation, the world is pictured as one that is plunged neck deep in sin, in rebellion to God, apart from Him, without hope. We should reckon with the fact that we, beloved, this morning are not the solution. The church, in the sense of our activism, in the sense of our own ability, we are not able to fix the world. This is the sum of the background of what the Bible speaks to. Now, if that was the sum total of everything the Bible had to say, merely that there is this world that is in the hands of the evil one, that is in sin, and there's nothing we can do about it, if that was the sum total of the message of the Word of God, it would be a hopeless book, wouldn't it? But in fact, that's not the sum total of the Word of God. We can't fix this world. But there's one who can. And His name is Jesus Christ. And the, the, the point of the message that we should have to each other and to the lost and dying world is the same message that, that John gave to the church, which is, the only way that we ultimately can have peace in this life is not to reorient all of our circumstance. It's to reorient our hearts in fellowship with God. Remember what he said as he began this letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The people of the Bible who are heroes of the story, the individuals that we look to in the great chapter, the hall of fame of faith, uh, the individuals like Abraham who the Bible describes as being an individual with his own besetting sin, the, the, the ones that really conquer in this life are not ones that look to activism and moralism and political ideologies. The real heroes are those who look to God who take their eyes off of this world and rest in the work of God and His promises alone. Think of what the Bible records, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11, of this man Abraham. It says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. His focus was not on this world, but on God alone. Think about the way that Paul wrote that though this life would be filled with sufferings and trials and heartbreaks, that if we would set our hearts upon Christ, we would not be separated from Him. As he writes, that I am not my own, but I belong... Excuse me, I jumped ahead. 
that nothing in life or death would separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us that. We also have this throughout church history. In the Heidelberg Catechism, the very first question is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer to that is that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. To live for Him. That's what Abraham was doing. That's what the Bible calls us to. That's what John is imploring us to do is to live our lives fully assured of what the Spirit is doing in our midst. And fully assuring us of our call to live for His glory alone. And to do this, we must square with the reality that wars will rage, that woe will come, and that we will have to wrestle with our own wretchedness. With that in mind, if you would do honor to the reading of God's Word and stand this morning. So we begin again, 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He first loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you today thankful for the assurance that we can know that you have given us your spirit. Father, we come thankful to know that as the world is out of sorts, as we suffer loss, and as we see uh, political and uh, social turmoil around the globe, that you are not caught off guard by any one of these things, that your plan of redemption is still coming to pass. So Father, help us not to rest in anything but the work of your spirit for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Again, we come to this verse and to verse 12 and consider what we have been given from God as a seal of our salvation, that we are indwelt by God and that we can know that we belong to Him. We talked about how we arrive at this certainty last week that we have a, a sense of sin. The Spirit works that in our hearts that we ha- uh, realize the holiness of God, that we long for righteousness, that gifts are granted, that we might serve the body well, that we see the fruit of the Spirit multiplying in our lives and in our congregation. And the Spirit gives us a heart that cries out, Abba, Father. So we come back again to this particular passage to ask one more time the question, do we have this assurance? How can, how can we receive the Holy Spirit? What do, do we have to do to receive the Holy Spirit? What are the manifest, manifestations of the Spirit in our lives if He is present? And I want to return to this theme again. It bears repeating. That we can know that we belong to Him. That we can be certain. Beloved, if we back up and just take a, a look at all of the New Testament, the New Testament shows the Christian as one who knows what he possesses and is certain and, and, and absolutely definite in his understanding. The Christian is one that is, is clearly 
different from the world around him. Being a Christian in the biblical sense is not a vague thing. Now, you interject man into the equation, you allow for 2,000 years of theological argumentation and debate, and the issue becomes hazy and murky, and it's not clear who genuinely are the believers and who are not. But if we stick to the New Testament and its articulation of the faith once for all delivered to the saints, it's not unclear whether or not what a Christian looks like. It's not hazy. It's not mystical. The Father lets His children know that they belong to Him. The New Testament speaks in terms of those who belong to the world and those who belong to Christ. There's a clear division. If we ask the question, does theology divide? Absolutely. God, in describing His children and what they will look like in their redeemed state, immediately starts to divide. Because He wants you to know in a world that is neck deep in sin that you belong to Him and not to the world that is in the power of the evil one. So if theology divides, let it be our grace to give us comfort that we are divided from all that will be damned. The New Testament makes distinction between light and darkness, between those in the world again and those who are in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Peter writes, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him, speaking of Christ. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy and inexpress- that is inexpressible and filled are filled with glory. The believer, Peter says, is an individual who longs to behold the glory of Christ and who all throughout his life loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is different from the rest of the world. The people that the New Testament describes as Christians are individuals who are spiritual in their nature first and primarily. They're they're not ordinary people just trying to follow seven steps to live a better life in this age. They're individuals who have been changed by the miraculous hand of God. They are different. There is a power about them. There is a radiance about them. that They love others in, in a way that is foreign to this world. They are warm and tender to those who are suffering. They are set apart new men, new creations, with an entirely new life ruling over them and in them. They have received something not of their own works, but something of grace and of grace alone. That is what the New Testament says. Now, if we fast forward a little bit, we will see all throughout church history that this is the reality in great men of the faith as well. If we look to people like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, we will see individuals who did, or Charles Spurgeon, who did amazing things for God, who were lifted up in their own generation. To to proclaim the excellencies of the grace of Almighty God and of what Christ had, had done to redeem men and women, boys and girls from their sin. And these men were warm. They were filled with power and radiance and affection. These men who were part of the church that the world despises still to this day have scholarly eggheads that don't know Jesus writing about them because they were so fantastic. Do you know what the reality is? Apart from Jesus Christ, they aren't that great. There's a guy who has, there's a study, I should say. I don't know if it's just one individual. That they have taken measurements of the skull of George Whitfield because they want to prove that it's the size of his head that is ultimately responsible for the Great Awakening. Now they might have the diagnostic wrong. But they realized that this man was used mightily in a movement of individuals. But it wasn't anything that we can touch that ultimately is responsible. It is the Spirit of God that moves among men. And we see this all throughout church history. We see the reality That the Spirit is at work giving joy and passion and exuberance. And not just to the men who have biographies written about them. But the Spirit of God moves among His people, all of them, to bring them to being new creations. That they know they belong to the living God. 
and that one day they will be safe at home with Him. I love how Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 and verses 11 and 12, and this great apostle, this great messenger, the one who was untimely born, he, 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 he admits the reality that he's not as a born-again believer in some other class, though his task was different, his giftings were different. When it comes down to salvation, what we get to glory in is not something we have done, but it's the mutual faith we share. Listen to his words. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Uh, Paul gives this picture of the reality that, that the faith once for all delivered to the saints doesn't leave this hierarchical church, that we all use our giftings wherever the Lord has placed us in the body for His glory, and we rejoice in our, and are encouraged by our mutual faith, both yours and mine. The joy in that is that all individuals who belong to Christ, and this is where I began, can know that they belong to the living God. We can know that. So the question is, if the Bible tells us that we can know it, and if the Bible is so clear and explicit that there are those who are in Christ and there are those who belong to the world and those are two distinct categories, why is it that so many struggle and so many doubt that they have the Spirit of God? Well, I want to give you three reasons why. One is wrong teaching. So many people ask, Jay, does, is false teaching really that big of a deal? My response would be, only if you want to come out on the other end with the right answer. False teaching only matters if you are concerned with whether or not the answers on the other end of the teaching are correct. How many of you this morning, given the option to send your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren to a school where the math teacher was teaching 2 plus 2 equals 5, how many of you would rise up this morning and say, yes, that is where I want my posterity to be educated? None of us. Because downstream from 2 plus 2 equals 5, as stupid as that is, there's greater consequences if we keep on going with just that small amount of false teaching. And the reality is, beloved, that when we get things wrong with the eternal Word of God, it can rob people of their assurance that they are really of God. So let's think about some of that false teaching. One, there is this false teaching that says we only receive the, the Holy Spirit <coughs> instantaneously. And in a sense, <coughs> this is a, <coughs> a truth that we are quickened, made alive in an instant. <coughs> but the reality is, that as we come to new life, as the new birth takes place, the process goes on. Some of us grow gradually, others grow quickly. You know, it's interesting if we look in church history, there, there, there are individuals that no doubt God saves and then raises up and uses in their generation in ways that you just go, that's not even fair. I have a desire to do things to glorify the Lord, but I don't have all of those gifts. Think about Spurgeon who could read like eight volumes uh, an evening. What? Or, or, or you, you think about John Calvin who, who came to a, a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in about his 23rd, 24th year depending. And within one year, of his conversion, he wrote the first book of what would eventually become, a, I think, a five or six volume um, work called The Institutes on Christian Religion. And that one first volume was kind of like a miniature catechism, and it was printed broadly uh, in that particular part of the world in, in such a way that most people carried a copy of that work in their breast pocket if they could afford it. He had been converted for one year. 
I don't know about you, but there's not a whole lot that I'll carry in my pocket from someone who has just come to Christ. But we see ultimately that the Lord will grow individuals in His own timing and for His own glory. Some are discouraged because they don't see in their life this sudden, immediate, dramatic, instantaneous story. We here, I think to bring this a little closer to home, we have missionaries or individuals that come and give testimonies publicly and they were neck deep in this sin or that sin and it was so bleak and dark and hopeless and, and, and whatever and then like a switch goes off and their life completely heads in the opposite direction and they grow by leaps and bounds seemingly having more energy and vigor for the Lord than an individual who has spent 60 or 70 years in the church. The error is this, to make those individual testimonies the measuring stick for everyone else. To say that we all have to have a dramatic, instantaneous kind of experience. Maybe, again, the, the better word than just instantaneous is, is, is dramatic reception of the Holy Spirit. Well, we do, in our generation, pay attention to, to dramatics, don't we? If someone does something dramatic, we tend to give more credibility to that particular uh, experience. But the Holy Spirit doesn't always come in dramatic fashion. Sometimes it's slowly. Sometimes individuals, I think, I've known people who I believe have been saved by the Spirit of God, and it just takes them a little while to catch up and realize what He's done. I, I genuinely believe that. that. Then there's those who teach that the Holy Spirit is always received with this big emotional hubbub, that it's tears and all of those kinds of things. And in some instances, there is emotion, but that's not always true. Again, we, we focus in revivalism in this country on dramatics. Setting up the tent and making the show and having multiple people fill altars and all of those things. Do you know that that has not been the reality for most of church history? That's not the way that conversion has been understood. And you, you say that that's not the way conversion has been understood in many churches in America today. And you will be anathematized because we want the dramatics. We want the emotionalism. But beloved, do you remember what, what Jesus said to Nicodemus about the new birth? In John chapter 3, verse 8, comparing the moving of the Spirit to the wind, Jesus said, says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Sometimes, beloved, there is a mad rush, a whirlwind, a hurricane, if you will, of the Spirit of God in bringing people to salvation. Other times, it's a gentle breeze. But you know what it is all the time? The work of the Spirit. You see, the fact is, friends, that what is important is not the how. What is important is the condition of having received the Spirit. But most of what we spend our time on, most of what we, I'm convinced, try to do in the church is to repeat the how. To continue to try to contrive. If someone's converted this way, then we need to build all of our services and all of our circumstances and all of what we do in ministry around that type of the how of their conversion. And it matters little how in comparison to the condition of actually having received the Spirit of God. And it's interesting how, how most of the New Testament writings really deal more with the condition of being in the Spirit and not the actual how of it, it's happening. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't teach, but I do think that we're out of proportion in our teaching. The how and the condition are both important, but I do believe that the condition is ultimately where we gain our assurance, knowing what it looks like to actually have possessed the spirit, possession of the Spirit of Almighty God. So there are those that teach that the Spirit's influence is this instantaneous zap and all is well. Then there are those who <clears throat> point that the Holy Spirit always is received with emotional hubbub, 
And then there are those who I believe teach and, and more of a failure in teaching to differentiate between the gift and the grace of the Holy Spirit. The giftings oftentimes seem dramatic, don't they, in the text, in the New Testament. When we see the gifts of healing and of tongues and of interpretation, those are dramatic, emphatic giftings. Now, I believe that those giftings are given to give credence and to give a a, a stamp, a, a sign that the word of the apostle is true. But that's a different argument for a different day, and we can disagree on that. Um, but ultimately what we do see in those, some of those New Testament giftings are really dramatic things that the whole world, both saved and unsaved, can see. I, I mean, when the apostles were walking around and they were laying hands on people and imparting spiritual that's pretty dramatic. You can't read the, 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 the book of Acts and go, well, this is boring. And, and here's the thing. If Hollywood ever tried to make a movie, Lord help us, please don't, uh, about the book of Acts, they would mess it up because it's far too glorious for the, 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 the nonsense that goes on in Hollywood. I mean, there are amazing, absolutely emphatic displays of God's gifting in people, and, and we shouldn't be against that. We, we should marvel at what God did in his po- apostles and his prophets. But the reality is this, is this, beloved, that there are also graces that the Spirit gives. And do you know what we spend an improportionate amount of time speaking of in the church today? The dramatic giftings over the dramatic graces of Almighty God. If we think through... Just 1 Corinthians 13, one line, one verse of 1 Corinthians 13, three graces are enumerated, faith, hope, and love. Those are graces of the Spirit of God. And are they not also miraculous and awesome? I would tell you that some people can't see them as miraculous and awesome because they have been taught a garbage theology that makes faith, hope, and love something that we do as humans, not something that's given to us. The Spirit not only produces and does produce giftings in the life of believers, He also produces the graces that we have. Living our lives centered on the Lord Jesus Christ is grace enough. If we were to think through what the Spirit does. Secondly, not only is there false teaching that hinders our assurance, there's also wrong motives that hinder our assurance. Turn to Acts chapter 8 with me. Starting in verse 9 of Acts chapter 8. But there was a man, pay attention to Simon. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and had amazed the the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Boy, that's that's a life verse for a lot of preachers on the internet and on TV today. They all paid attention to him, for the, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is, is the, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself was believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not, fallen, he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of, Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God 
with money. Now what's the problem for Simon in this passage? The problem is his motive. He wants to obtain the gifting. Why? So that he can go back, I believe, to verse 9. That people would marvel not at the Lord, but at him. His motives, his desires were carnal. Friends, we do this in our own day. In fact, I think this is the problem that's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We see other people's giftings. We see other people's ministries. We see the power that God pours out in other people. And we covet their giftings. We covet what they have. When Jesus gave the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For power? For gifts? For ministries? No. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for the holiness of God. That they would be conformed to the image of Christ. And as we have that desire, as holiness is our motive, as, as, as Christ-likeness is our desire, and not the giftings, not the applause, not the praises, not the look at my ministry, but at the glory of God and, and the holiness of God, as that is laid before our hearts and that is our motive, then and only then will we be blessed, will we be filled, will we receive the gifts that God wants us to have in our due course. Do you boast in your giftings, Christian? Do you want others to look at you and think, wow, I'm amazed at him or I'm amazed at her? Not only do we have false teachers in the world, we have bad motives. Not only do we have those things, we also have individuals and all of us, you haven't been hit so far, fall into this category with wrong practice. We know the word and yet we disobey it. We quench the spirit. Not obeying the leading or the prompting of the Spirit in our lives causes us to quench the Spirit of God. The, the Spirit, again, can come in a loud, you just know that you're, you're supposed to live according to the Word in this way or that way. Or the Spirit can lead in, in quiet leadings and promptings, and instead of submitting your life to the leading of the Spirit, you quench His work. You ignore Him. I think that this happens often, and I think we have to be very careful about this in this room. It happens when we, we fall into the realm of intellectualism, of turning the Bible merely into something that we can understand apart from the Spirit of God, when we are no longer de dependent upon Him. Uh, we can look at the excesses of charismaticism in our day and we don't want to be guilty of what those abuses and those movements are doing. Uh, we don't want to be just emotionally driven. We don't merely uh, want to think of the Spirit as just zapping people. Uh, we want to see the kind of Christian life lived out that is in the Bible, but in, in looking at all of the abuses of the Spirit and all of the emotional foolishness and nonsense, we can end up becoming so afraid of having what is false that we forfeit what is true. And we just merely rely on our own intellect. But, beloved, can we all rejoice in the fact that the gospel is not a set of facts, a syllabus, and an outline, that it is actually a life lived in the power of the Spirit of the One who created the heavens and the earth. We're not merely intellectuals in this room. Now, we should use our intellect, and I think that's the problem for the other side. But it's not, it's not only that. It's not just that. We must not quench the Spirit of God by merely relegating His gospel to a, a, a set of facts. The other way of wrong uh, practice is by grieving the Holy Spirit. And if you were here, goodness, years ago now, in Ephesians chapter 4, we've slept a few times since then. Ruth and everything, it's, it's been great. Um, uh, but you'll remember in Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And we talked about the reality that that verse is not talking about grieving the Spirit emotionally in the sense that you and I are grieved emotionally maybe when a child or a grandchild or a friend does something that emotionally unsettles us because the triune God is immutable. He's unchanging. 
He, he doesn't move according to us. And, and so what the Apostle is teaching here when he says don't grieve the Spirit of God is not don't tempt God to change. What he's saying is don't walk away from walking in step with the Spirit. Don't move from honoring God according, according to His Word and under the influence of His Spirit. Because in fact... If you do sin egregiously against His Word, if you willingly go against the Word of God and grieve the Spirit, it's not God who will ultimately have proved to have changed. It will be you. And God has sealed those that belong to Him for the day of redemption. So do you know what will happen if you grieve the Spirit of God? You will receive grief. He will, in fact, chasten you and bring difficult circumstances to bring you back into right, uh, a right walk with Him. And sometimes those consequences are really profound. Beloved, I remember preaching this text and will always for the rest of my life because I remember preaching it and the very next week a dear friend of mine walked into abject immorality after we had just talked about this verse and the consequences for that young man were dire. God proved Himself to be faithful and immutable and grieving the Spirit of God proved again, in accordance with the Word of God, to be a very dangerous thing for those who actually belong to Him. Our Father does correct all of those who belong to Him. And so if these are the hindrances, and they are, wrong teaching, wrong motives, wrong practices, all of those things have, have just suffocated the work of the Spirit in our day. That is true. The greater question is, how do we remove these hindrances? How do we move past them? Well, this is where there are certain things that we must do. Having received grace by faith alone, having been forgiven not because of our own goodness, our own ability, but only because God had lavished His love upon us from the foundation of the world. Now, to walk in the Spirit, there are things that we should do positively. And the first is we should immerse our lives in the Word of God. Both in Bible study, in preaching, in reading the Word daily, so on and so forth, we should make sure that our lives are saturated with the words of God. 24-7, 365 days a year, Satan is set about to deceive the church. He is the liar. He wants to corrupt what God has created. And he wants to rage against what God is redeeming. And what is our antidote? What is it in the... In the the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that one small word will fell him, will cut him off at the knees. And do you remember that? what that word is? Liar. Satan, you are, you are lying. And the only way that we can ultimately know what those lies are is to know what the truth is. To know the positive reality of what God really has said. When Satan says, has God really said... We all need to say, hold on, I'm going to look it up. And the only way we can do that is if our lives are immersed in the Word of God. If we know this book. And when we do, then we gain clarity on what the spiritual life looks like. Do you know that one of the greatest joys in my life has been coming from the backwoods of Missouri where a lot of really poor theology was, was taught and there were a lot of men who would say, you know, I just, I don't, all I need is my Bible, I don't need to go to school. And then they would dump garbage th theology on their churches and false convictions and all of this weight of what it meant to be walking in the Spirit that the Bible really doesn't speak to at all. And the more that I've come to know the Bible, the more that I've been given just so much freedom to traffic in what the Spirit actually does and not in all of the nonsense religiously that people say the Spirit does. What also happens when we know the Word of God is we can discern false teachers. We can call those jokers out. When individuals say, if you believe, then you'll have health and you'll have wealth and you'll have this and you'll have that, we can look throughout all of Scripture and go, well, why didn't you give it to any of these people? 
Well, why is it that the, that the apostles seemed to suffer egregiously in the first century and they were the bearers of his message? We, we can see that those individuals who would try to treat us as merchandise are merely false teachers. We also have our motives refined. We are called out for who we are. We look into the Word of God as a mirror and sometimes it is like getting up out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning and you look a hot mess spiritually speaking. God convicts you and shows you that what you are doing in your life for Him is really all about you and not for His glory. But that in and of itself is a gift when we look in the Word because that is God at work. That dear brother who wrote me this week about uh, the, the heart that he wrote with was help me understand or help me formulate a prayer for these dear brothers and sisters because we seemingly in our church always respond to political crisis in the wrong direction. And my response was, brother, don't feel alone in that. That is a human reality in every church that ever is. And the fact that you merely see it, the fact that you know that that's a reality, the fact that you can see that there's a spiritual problem is God at work for the good of His people. So when God shows us those things, our motives are checked and also our practices are checked. We can look at how we're living our lives and we are convicted that we're not living in a way that brings honor and glory to Him. Again, remember this. Keep this at the forefront of your mind. The reason that this letter is written is not so that you would have a list of things to keep up with and try to live up to some standard to prove yourself to be a, a holy roller. The purpose of this letter in a dark and fallen world that lies in the power of the evil one is that you would have joy in knowing that you have true fellowship with God. And friends, I don't care what the Supreme Court says what Congress says, or what most of society says. If the Bible calls a particular practice damnable and, and deserving of the wrath and judgment of God, the rest of the world can say that you're okay doing it, but the wrath of God will still be against you. It's also a comfort to know the Word of God, to know that as Christians, the wrath of God is not against us because it's been poured out upon our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, we need to know the Word of God as an anecdote to having genuine assurance. If you struggle with your assurance today, I want you to hear me. Read your Bible, not as a check mark as a, on, on your moralistic list. That's not the way we read our Bible. We go to our Bible like a, like a deep... Have you, how many of y'all watch the show, uh, what's it called, Gold Diggers in here? What? Gold Rush. Sorry, gold diggers are the women. Gold Rush. <laughs> or men, I guess. I'm going to shut up now. Gold Rush. You know, they go looking for, for all of the riches in the earth. Friends, this is a gold mine, and it's not... There's yeah, those... <clears throat> Jorge used to make fun of me because I love watching Deadliest Catch and I love watch, watching Gold Rush. And his critique was always, brother, those shows are the same thing every time. Either they catch crab or they don't catch crab. Either they get gold or they don't get gold. But it's the same thing. I was a little indignant at that and after a while I was like, you're right. I still like it. But here's the point. Beloved, if you belong to Him, I promise you that this is a gold mine that will not leave you empty. Start mining for its riches. Start looking for the promises. The reason that you don't have assurance and that you're so weak in your faith is because you're not living on the substantive graces of Almighty God through His Word. And I can't just give them to you. So we... Know the Word of God. Secondly, we walk in obedience. 
The Bible in our minds, we can see who God really is. And when that happens, it brings us to a point of humility. When we really see who God is, that, that, that He is the individual who provided for the nation of Israel and is loving and merciful and kind, but He's also that God, that when Uzzah put his hand on the cart, on the Ark of the Covenant, in a way that was not appropriate, that brought dishonor to, to, to God, He struck him dead. Or Ananias and Sapphira, when they decided to worship according to their own uh, conscience and according to what they thought was okay, according to their own motives, they were consumed. And we realize that our practices and our motives have to be in line with the will and the Word of God. We walk and want to walk in obedience. And, And here is what happens. We then avoid grieving as much as we can by the Spirit of God, open sin, uh, uh, the Spirit by openly sitting. We avoid quenching the Spirit. We mortify the deeds of the flesh. But do you know where all of this leads us? When we really know the Word of God and when we really seek to obey Him in our lives, when that is really our heart's aim, it will bring us to our knees every time. I promise you that if you are living under the Word of God, you cannot strut. You have to fall on your knees and ask God for grace. Because you will see the reality of what He has called you to and the reality of who you are. And all you can do in that moment is cry out, Abba, Father, I need you. And in that moment, you'll be assured that you have the Spirit of God living in you. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence thankful that you have humbled arrogant prideful creatures like us father we are thankful that you have sent throughout the church age teachers to proclaim the excellencies of your word to clarify to divide those who would distract from your glory father we come acknowledging the reality of our our bad motives and of our our sin our 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 misplaced practices Father, we hunger and thirst for your word. Would you give us a greater appetite for your word that we might be conformed both in motive and in practice uh, to the image of Christ. And Father, we know that we can't do this alone, but it's only the working of your spirit that allows us to grow in our walk with you. Father, would you do this in this church, not for our glory, not for our fame, but for your namesake.